Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 36, Cat's Paw. Mission Log, a Roddenberry podcast is on. Man, that is some bad poetry. Yeah. I'm here to tell you. Yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> you're not wrong about that. Hey, but hey, but I, I will tell you, though, I can picture you totally as a quasi-disembodied head, but I can totally see your turtleneck sweater. <laughs> <laughs> as you float mysteriously in front of me. I can see that. And the bacon that I've laid over my face to make it look like I'm old. Yes. Yeah. It's makeup and it's delicious. I think I think what my bad poetry, though, and my, my banshee wailing was meant to do was welcome people into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I oh. am one of the people who does that, Ken Ray. And I'm the other person who does that, John Champion. And uh, today we are talking about Cat's Paw, the stellar season two episode. Oh, see, don't do that. <laughs> Why not? Because Why you're, not? Cause you're tipping your hand. You're, you're revealing. No. Spoiler alert. Guess what John thinks about this episode? I'm, I think it's stellar. I'm not, not going to say. Yeah, I see, but I don't think people will believe you at this point. I think it's a knockout episode. <laughs> and hey, you know what? Um, before we get into our uh, full analysis of the episode, we want to hear what you have to say. Yes, you who are listening to this show. Uh, you can reach us at Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. Our handle there is Mission Log Pod. You can give us a call at 323-522-5641. You can even email us missionlog at roddenberry.com and please 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 check out our website missionlogpodcast.com remember your comments may be used on an upcoming episode of mission log so yeah cat's paw mm-hmm. kind of crazy so uh, yeah I, I our landing party beams down they go to a haunted house and let the <laughs> <laughs> oh that's so that's yeah okay Hey, we should do the thing so that we can do the other thing, and then we'll, you know, wrap this whole thing up. Uh, you've got this okay. thing that you do at the start of every show. Uh, you do, of course, uh, lay down some some trivial information for us or some information that is trivial. Do that trivia thing, please, won't you? I'll do the trivia thing. Here we go. Um, first of all, it's Walter Wig, not a wig, Koenig. Uh, his first appearance to check off. So here's the thing for all of you who are playing the home version of Mission Log. Yes, we are going in broadcast order. But we have to mention that this one was shot way, way back in May of 1967. And they held off airing it until October of that year as kind of a Halloween special. So this is actually the first time that Walter Koenig was on set portraying the role of Chekhov. And yes, unfortunately, he's got the wig. Why did uh, he have to have the wig? What, I mean, what was with his hair that, that they had to do that? Well, here's the thing. They, they wanted him to have this sort of, you know, Beatles-esque Davy Jones mop top look. But, it, you know, Walter Koenig's just a regular dude. He wasn't walking around looking like John Lennon just stepped off the Pan Am jet to uh, go to his New York concert. So they put the wig on him and then they waited for his hair to grow out long enough that they could style it to make it look that way. All right. So, yeah, <laughs> it's just totally a style thing. They just made some poor wig decisions. I think wig technology in 45 plus years has come a long, long way. 
Um, Theo Marcuse, who plays Korob, um, I did want to mention that he actually tragically died in a car crash very soon after this episode airs, about a month later, it was in November of 1967. Uh, but he has a lot of other Star Trek kind of crossover references that we should mention. He co-starred with Sherry Jackson, yes, Andrea, from What Are Little Girls Made Of, in an episode of Batman. He also co-starred with Sally Kellerman in an episode of I Spy. And and he was in that creepy Twilight Zone episode, you know, the one with the cookbook. To uh-huh. Serve Man. Oh, see, that, that was my thing. I'm, I'm never going to mention a Twilight Zone title. Why? I'm just, I'm just going to let the audience figure it out because we all know them. We don't all know everything. Come on. You got you to gotta help people out. What if somebody said, oh, wow, I really want to see that, but I don't know which one is the one with the cookbook. <laughs> well, that, there you go. It's to Serve Man. To serve man, yeah. To serve man, by the way. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) It's a cookbook. Yeah, it's been like 50 years. Um, If you haven't seen it, I really don't feel responsible for the fact that you didn't know that. um, This episode, Cat's Paw, was written by Robert Block. And uh, it is based, uh, well, you know, depending on how you look at it, they're very closely or loosely around his 1957 story, broomstick ride and uh, there's some excellent analysis out there for you to check out if you want to see what those parallels are um other interesting things about uh robert block so there's a point in this episode where korob mentions the old ones you know who else mentions the old ones uh-huh it's rock rock what are little girls made of who wrote what are little girls made of robert block couple of other things. Uh, well, there's one, one little thing here, and little is the appropriate word. The, uh, the Enterprise model. There's a moment in the show where we have a little metal uh, model of the Enterprise that Sylvia uses to hold over a flame. So that model, there are actually two of them. One of them is encased in Lucite. That was donated to the Smithsonian by Matt Jeffries. And uh, there's a little bit of conflicting information about who actually built that model. Um, Some say that it was Richard Helmer. And uh, this was one of his first gigs in Hollywood, was working on props, and that he was really young at the time. Uh, But the Smithsonian actually credits the build to David Budd Morton. So conflicting information, not totally sure, but it was donated by Matt Jeffries. Coming up next, it's a creepy, kooky, mysterious, and spooky time for Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Prologue. Kirk and crew are worried that they've not heard from the landing party of three, Scotty, Sulu, and Jackson. Don't know Jackson? Eh, don't worry, he'll beam up alone. Then he'll die. Through him, though, we'll hear a voice. Captain Kirk, can you hear me? There is a curse on your ship. Leave this place, or you will all die. Act 1. No apparent cause for the death of Jackson. With Scotty and Sulu out of radio range, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to see if they can find out what killed him and retrieve Sulu and Scotty, leaving Lieutenant DeSalle in command. Foggy on the planet. No reason for that, but there it is. Spock picks up life signs ahead of them, though the Enterprise says the only life signs they can find belong to Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Well, they would say that had the radio not stopped working. The three men stumble upon what seem to be three ghostly hags, and they have bad news. For Kirk, by name, go back. Remember the curse. It's going to get foggy and windy, and you're going to die. Spock says it's bad poetry, but he's not so worried since the hags weren't real. But the life forms he read earlier are, so they press on. Into suddenly growing fog and wind, which stops almost as suddenly. Through that, and there's a castle. 
And it's the source of the life signs that Spock is reading and that no one else can. In fact, the Enterprise didn't even pick up the castle. Spock's the only one getting sensor readings. Into the castle they go, but not before a black cat angrily crosses their path. Aboard the Enterprise, Chekhov tells Dassault that the landing party is gone from his sensors. Dassault tells Chekhov to check for malfunctions. Chekhov says he has, but Dassault says, do it again! In the castle, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy press on, falling straight into a hole in the floor. They awake shackled to a wall in a dungeon. This is no illusion, according to Spock. The shackles are real. So what's up with all the dark earth manifestations? Spock thinks that could be what it is. Manifestation of man's greatest fears. In walk Sulu and Scotty, but they're kind of zombie versions, and pointing a phaser at the landing party. Act 2. Scotty and Sulu know Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, though that's about all they can indicate. They unshackle the three men and start to take them someplace. Kirk and Spock try to overpower them when, blink, they're in a completely different room. All five of them, with a bald guy and the black cat. What is up with people and their need to poke around? Can't they just take things at face value? That's what Korob wants to know. Korob's the bald guy. He can talk to the cat, which isn't that odd. I can talk to cats. But the cat can talk back to him in a way he understands, and that part is kind of odd. The cat reminds Korob that he's being rude. He should offer the men refreshment. Then he should try to bribe them to leave with diamonds, rubies, emeralds, and sapphires. They should just leave and not worry about why he's on the planet. But they're not hungry, and they're not impressed with the bribe. And they'll leave when they want to, not when Korob tells them to. Which confuses Korob. He'd expected something very different, and now he says, They've passed the tests. They were warned to stay away, but came anyway to save their comrades. That proves loyalty. Their bravery was tested, and they did not frighten. And they apparently can't be bribed. In many ways, they are quite admirable. Now the cat starts mewing and meowing, and she's dismissed by Korob, and returns as a woman. Sylvia. Now the reveal. You wanted to know how we did what we did to your men? It is so easy to probe your minds. Probe and control. While Sylvia monologues, Kirk sees a chance. He wrests control of Scotty's phaser away and points it at her. She insists they release the weapon, then pulls out a little charm of the Enterprise on a chain. Turns out, using sympathetic magic, she can control stuff that's far away. For example, she thought Jackson dead earlier, and he died. Now she lets Kirk call the Enterprise as she holds the charm over a candle. How are things on the Enterprise? Hot and getting hotter. The temperature just went up 60 degrees in 30 seconds. Hopefully that's Fahrenheit. Either way, Chekhov says they are burning up. And maybe they'll cool off during the commercial. Act 3. Kirk suggests a technical solution to the Enterprise dilemma, though DeSalle says they already tried that. Kirk says he'll handle it from where they are, then gives in to Sylvia's demand, telling Spock to release the phaser. All is well on the Enterprise, except they've lost contact with the landing party again. Korob says Kirk and the gang have seen some of their science. Now how about telling Sylvia and Korob about theirs? Kirk's more interested in theirs, though. They seem to do things with their minds that humans do with tools. Korob starts to explain, but Sylvia loses patience. Tell us what we want to know. Kirk says threats won't work. He's talked to the Enterprise. They know he's alive and they'll send a search party. Except for the part where they can't. The Enterprise charm is encased in something, which means the Enterprise in space is too. It's safe, but it's stuck in what Korob calls an impenetrable force field. It's a no-search party. Sylvia suggests they cooperate, but Kirk thinks not. Korob orders them to return to their cell, except for Bones. He's going to have his mind probed. Aboard the Enterprise, Dassault is unimpressed with the force field. They may not know what it is or why, but it's real. And if it's real, it can be affected. So let's get to work on that, huh? 
In the dungeon, Spock and Kirk do some pondering. All of the fears they face seem to be from the racial subconscious of humans. They tried to hit the conscious mind and missed. Also, they don't get the scientific methods the Enterprise gets. And they keep referring to the landing party as creatures, not people. Spock figures they must be totally alien. Not just, you know, alien. Kirk agrees, and they gotta be stopped. In walks McCoy. Uh-oh, zombie McCoy. Sulu unshackles Kirk, who's apparently going to get his mind probed. Upstairs, Korob and Sylvia are fighting. Korob says Sylvia's forgotten what they were sent for. Sylvia says she hasn't forgotten, she's just not a puppet like him. He says she's a traitor. She says he's a fool. She is really digging the whole human thing. Touching, physical feelings, luxuries. She's thinking of maybe not leaving. Korob says they have a duty to the old ones, but Sylvia's not impressed. Korob is bothered that she's torturing the landing party, though she says she's kind of digging that, too. Korob says she's discarding everything they live by, but she lives by her own rules. Also, she might kill him, so stay in line. Now, if Korob will excuse Sylvia, she'd like some alone time with Kirk. So, says Kirk, gonna destroy my mind? Sylvia explains that the minds of the others aren't damaged, they just have no memories or will. Kirk says she'd have some compassion if she were a woman, but she's not. Oh, but she says I am. Let's get together and run stuff, huh? She wants to know about power. Kirk starts touching her. I guess that's power. Sylvia is now totally willing to do without Korob. She is so hot for Kirk. She couldn't probe his mind. She wants him willingly. She's really into this idea of together, which is also a totally new idea. Kirk, by the way, getting pretty handsy with Sylvia. And kissy. She doesn't get it, but she's into it. So, kiss, kiss, kiss. How do you guys do what you do? Kiss, kiss, kiss. Oh, it's the transmuter. Kiss, kiss, kiss. But we'll talk about... Hey, you're using me, says Sylvia. Yeah, she's gonna kill everybody now. Or soon. Aboard the Enterprise, Desal and Chekhov find out that their work against the force field is starting to pay off. Not that it matters. In the dungeon, Korob tells Kirk and Spock that he's freed their ship and he needs to get them out of there because seriously, Sylvia is going to kill everybody. But Kirk won't go without his men. Korob can't control them and he can't control Sylvia. She's irrational. Her newfound sensual nature has made her loopy. She's a great danger. Korob starts trying to sneak Kirk and Spock out, but yikes, Sylvia's a cat again. A giant, scary, dangerous cat. Act 4. Korob says he thinks he can stop the giant cat. Kirk says he'll try, but it turns out his phaser is drained. They could have overpowered Scotty any time. Actually, the doorway will stop Sylvia, though Sylvia will trap Korob by crushing him under the door. Good thing Korob had the transmuter, and that it wasn't damaged. Kirk grabs it. Still under Sylvia's control, the zombie away team members try to hinder Kirk and Spock's escape. Good thing they can't fight well. Sylvia, by the way, is still on the hunt. Kirk grabs the transmuter again, tells Sylvia he's got it. That backs her out of the cat form and back into Lady Sylvia. She still wants Kirk to come with her. We need your dreams, your ambition. With them, I can build. Oh, and Kirk could learn a lot from her and have a lot of power. Kirk declines and breaks the transmuter instead. Suddenly, the castle is gone. Everybody is fine and... What are those, bugs? Prawns, maybe? No, those tiny little things are Sylvia and Korob. Their forms were an illusion, just like everything else. Except for Jackson, who is still dead. Spock would like to preserve and study the two, but Sylvia and Korob die instead. 
the end. Can I just say that I think my favorite thing about this episode is your reenactment of the uh, Sylvia and Kirk seduction. <laughs> <laughs> you like that, do you? Hey, watch it. Watch it. Yeah. Oh, I got too distracted. That was, um, yeah. You know, her, oh, oh, her, uh, you're using me was, you yeah. know, <laughs> kind of amazing. She, you know, Sylvia grows a lot in this episode. <laughs> Boy, she does. In her understanding of uh, of uh, humanity and uh, mm. and male and female relations, I'm not saying she's learning good lessons, but she's learning. Right. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Yeah. Um. Well, I, uh, by the way, I, I didn't mention in the trivia because I wanted to mention now. This is the last time that we see uh, DeSalle, and the first and only time we see him in command. I, I'm just, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say that I think his command skills are a little lacking compared to who we've seen in the chair so far like kirk and spock oh i disagree yeah i mean really? well i mean yeah i do actually I, I well i mean obviously he's no kirk i witnessed no. the fact that he's what golly one two three fourth in line i guess in this episode although uhura sure. was fourth in line at one point so like it was sort of surprising to me that she was not in command because we have seen her in command in, in the past, and she's good in command. Um, Spock mm-hmm. gets better, although I would take this DeSalle over uh, Spock's Galileo command any well, day. He, he's definitely better than Spock uh, commanding the Galileo, but yeah. Spock has come a long way. Spock has since, come a long way, which is weird. Since those heady days of the Galileo. I was going to say, because he's only had command one other time, as far as we <laughs> right. know. But yeah, he's really amazing that second time. Um, here, here's what I will say. He, he, he's lacking in people skills, as was Spock in uh, Galileo 7. But um, I, I actually had in my notes that this guy was built, in, built for command. Smart, self-assured. I mean, when they end up in the invisible force field, they can't really see and they don't know where it came from. Um, Uhura and Chekhov really seem sort of resigned to the fact that this like magic force field is holding them there. But DeSalle says, well, no, I mean, he's kind of got the, you know, taggart, never give up, never surrender attitude. Um, <laughs> if it's real, it can be affected. And he's right. Now, ends up not mattering. I mean, I don't, yeah. it, was, it was actually kind of a weird thing to see. Like, okay, wow, tag, not Taggart. <laughs> that's, that's me. DeSalle's onto something here. And, you know, we even find out that they're onto something. But we're just going to throw that away. Because Korob is going to go ahead and change, change, uh, change it for them instead. See, I almost got the impression, and maybe it was an actor thing, maybe it was a director thing, I don't know, that he was kind of rubbing all, everybody else on the bridge the wrong way. <laughs> and I feel like that is a command skill, is to be able to uh, motivate yeah. and inspire. Yeah, but he didn't so. crumble. I mean, that was yeah, the thing. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, you know, Chekhov was, was a little, you know, well, I don't know if I can say this word, I'll say it. Uh, pissy. Chekhov was a little pissy yeah. with him. He's like, you know what? I'm not three. I, you know, I, oh, I, you... I tested it. I tested it again. But you, <laughs> you know, would he... be too if you had that wig. <laughs> well, there's, you know? he might be a little annoyed at that point. That's true. I, so I don't know, but I mean, that's, it's really a small part of it. Honestly, I just thought, I, I thought, yeah, I could actually see this guy in command, like to the point that I wondered if they were piloting him for something else. Like if they were saying, could this work as? Not necessarily another Star Trek thing, but was this like like his five minute screen test for something else? Because um, I don't know, it, it, he he seemed like an in control and command kind of guy. Well, too bad he's gone, gone, gone. Yeah, it's true. 
<laughs> no more to sell. <laughs> um, so, hey, hey, by the way, uh, in this episode, Spock says that all of those Halloween tropes, the, the black cat, the castle, all that stuff are, are universal. And um, if by universal, he means that in the sense of uh, 20th century America, then I, I'm totally sure it's universal. Other than that, I'm not so much sold on universal. I'd go a little bit back from 20th century America. I mean, we have the black cat superstition, right? Mm. I don't think that started in 1901. Um, no, 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 no. But, but, but the, the conglomeration of all of that meaning Halloween um, is it, presented in a mid-20th century America kind of style. Well, except Spock wasn't the one who said Halloween because Spock doesn't know about Halloween because we need Spock to be stupid about this one thing this one time. What Spock says is they're all scary. Now, I mean, the black cat is from, you know, an older time. Certainly the three hags are... I'm going to stick with my tradition. Well, I'm going to stick with my tradition of not naming the play, but the Scottish play, the Shakespeare (laughs) play. See, I like people to work for it. (laughs) They're they're straight out of um, uh, hmm. mm-hmm. and um, yeah the castle I don't know I actually thought it was kind of funny that Spock later is explaining you know cats the most ruthless and terrifying of animals all the way back to the saber toothed tiger I'd have gone with stick bugs mm-hmm. but you know I guess everybody else says cats because you're I mean and and you know in fairness to him that is something from from movies I mean you remember in Raiders of the Lost Ark the famous line cats. Why did it have to be cats? It's terrifying. Yeah. yeah it's absolutely. Plus the, the musical. Cat. Oh, uh, cats. God, there's just so much that's, yeah, just really awful. Really terrifying. <laughs> About cats. Yeah, it's not. You're right. It's very much a mid 20th century sort of. I mean, I think Rod had actually uh, said that this is kind of like the Scooby-Doo episode of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It's very. It's it's. Yeah. I mean, that you say that it was actually sort of put up as a Halloween episode. Well, that just makes perfect sense. I mean, really, what we yeah. needed was uh, was Landon and Chekhov sneaking off to the pumpkin patch oh. to really just make the whole thing oh. like just absolutely one hundred percent. Yes, it's it's. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. <laughs> so, kind of wish we had watched uh, it around then. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah, um, there are some other uh, you know you know familiar Star Trek moments in this. Um, we don't have a computer here for Kirk to destroy, so instead he just destroys a magic wand. Um, we have similarities to uh, Squire of Gothos. You know, we have the alien intelligence that is misreading and misunderstanding Earth culture. He's just very bad at research, and uh, he has a lot of power, although it's power. Through a device. Who's writing about us, by the way? He's, he said, um, from what I've yeah. read, and Kirk says, I don't care what you read. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Where's he reading that? Yeah, right. Because <laughs> who's like, putting out, who's putting out, how to capture and control Earthmen? Chapter one. Right. Many ways to the brain. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You think that if he'd bothered to go get a book, he would have gotten more than one book. And he probably <laughs> would have encountered more humans along the way. <laughs> So do you think Trelane was actually jotting down notes? He could have been. Like from the 400 years ago that he was watching things and then, you know, maybe added a little bit, maybe an index or maybe a sort of an appendix once he actually met the people from the Enterprise. And then, you know, all that time he was having to spend in his room once his mom and dad of energy took him back to, you know, his energy <laughs> planet. Then he wrote his book. He wrote his book, yeah. Many Ways to the Brain by Trelane, which is also bad poetry, by the way. 
Yes, yeah, a lot of, lot of bad poetry. Um, and, and sadly, here we have another you know, race of very advanced aliens. And um, boy, wouldn't it be great to study them, to, to try to understand what they're all about and what their physiology <laughs> is and where they come from. Well, too bad, they're just going to die and we're going to leave them on the planet. In fairness to Kirk, he didn't kill them. They died. No. Well, they did. Yeah, this is not like, though, I was thinking, actually, and we didn't cover this in uh, the Apple, but I was thinking, um, at the very least, we did have, like, the, you know, what was left of Vol to study, right? But, I mean, he went to kill Vol. He went to kill Landru. He went to kill Dr. Roger Corby. He's, I mean, he, you know, tends to be about to kill, and this time he was not, he was not trying to kill them. He was just trying to, you know, stop them. Yeah. And sadly, it turns out, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're going to die anyway. Sorry about your transmuter. Yeah. The weird thing, though, was uh, Spock is like saying, oh, gosh, it'd be great to capture them and study them. You know, and first of all, they, they can actually still understand him, <laughs> which is right. creepy. But the other thing is, no, they, then they just die. And so they just even leave the bodies. I mean, you would think the science I, I, officer... Exactly. Would still at least want to study like, well, you know, we have no idea how their brains work, but they they actually are kind of like prawns. They, they, you know know what they go really good with? Plumax soup. (laughs) Yes, they would. Um, Hey, do you think they're a little bit about, uh, they're a little bit like the Talosians? You know, they, uh, Sylvia is telling Kirk, we need your dreams. We need your ambition with them. We can build because, you know, they're just little, they're little prawns. Like yeah, they, well, they have bigger aspirations. Well, they're little prawns, but they're little prawns with a transmuter. I mean, they're actually able to go from another galaxy to this galaxy. I was actually troubled the whole time. We we have no clue what they're doing or why. That, that, None that's that's kind of bothering me. Um, Korob had like, said, "We want you here. We don't want you here. We're testing you. We're not testing you. Leave us alone. But we're going to keep. I, it, <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what they want. You'll be perfect for our plan, which we're never actually going to explain <laughs> or let you in on." Uh, Korob had said that they, you know, they could have come peacefully. So that did actually remind me of the whole thing with Telosians. Um, mm-hmm. They apparently were not on a mission of conquest, which the Telosians were, but the Telosians didn't have to be. They just chose to be. Um. Things only really seem to go south, and it, we're going to get more into this in the next segment. Things really only seem to go south once, you know, Sylvia realized, you know, that all of a sudden she had womanly bits and, you know, wanted to be all womanly. I don't know. It's it, They did remind me of that. I just wish I had known why they were – I mean, why? You know what I mean? I mean, there is the whole thing about we owe something to the old ones. Okay, well, what is it the old ones need? Well, we're not going to tell you. And, you know, and Korob says, you know, you're a traitor at one point. So, okay, there is still a hierarchy. So this is not like the old ones that Ruck served, which was just, you know, kind of a memory thing. I mean, they're actually still supposed to be doing something, but we just never, we we just don't even know why. Never find out. It's a mystery to me. Worthy of a mystery machine. A haunted castle, a dungeon, cats that change into people and people that change into prawns. Why did all of this go the way it went? You know, John, one of the cool things about Star Trek, uh, to me, it's um, it's the cool message episodes. There's value in facing your fear, 
Uh, people can accomplish a lot if they put their minds to it. Mm-hmm. One day you could maybe be a robot. I mean, really great messages that, yeah. that you know, just sing through. Then there are the, I would say, less inspiring, maybe even sometimes unintentional messages. Happiness mm. is for saps. Um, that robot thing might not work out as well as you hope. And sex is bad. What? Well, sexual attraction is bad, or maybe it's just being a woman is bad. I'm not, I'm not sure which of those things it is exactly. Wait a minute. Are, are, are we having another uh, Star Trek sexist moment? I don't here? know if we are. I think we might be. I'm trying to figure out if this episode is, and I don't believe any of this would have been intentional. Okay. okay. I, don't think, I don't think, you know, anybody went to anybody and said, hey, we need an anti-sex, yeah, anti-sex or anti-woman episode. Yes, I know we have several <laughs> anti-woman episodes, but we need another one. I'm feeling it. I don't think this was like intentional, but, but I couldn't help as I was watching it the second time, which I, by the way, liked it more the second time because I think I kind of made myself. But, oh, really? Yeah, that's, that's, we can get to that later. I'm trying to figure out if this is an indictment of the changing morals of the late 60s and of either, either an indictment of the sexual revolution or an indictment of the changing rules of women. Hmm. Sylvia lets go of the old ways of thought and is immediately all about touching and luxury and cruelty and dereliction of duty. As soon as she starts letting herself, you know, enjoy. Now, would it have been different if, say, Uhura or Landon had beamed down? Would Korob, assuming he's automatically attracted to a woman the way Sylvia was automatically attracted to Kirk, um... If there had been a Landon or an Uhura, or maybe just the right kind of guy for Korob, you know, in the landing party. I mean, let's, let's not even make it like a, you know, man-woman thing necessarily. Would we have had a straightforward indictment of the changing nature of sex at that point, rather than the possibility of the recurring, uh, you know, woman as flawed temptress message? Hmm. Well, see, here's the thing. I, I, I'm willing to cut them a lot of slack on this one i i like you said any message like that i think is purely unintentional i i would even take it a step further and i would say that it's just kind of sloppy and lazy well we have an alien in human form what are we going to do with them uh well we don't really know so we'll make something out of this uh, new physicality that they have and, and i really think that's about as far as they took it yeah, well, it's an interesting idea. I mean, and forgive it me. Is. I don't it, think, it is. I agree. I don't think message is actually the right thing because I do think that messages are intentional. We are mm-hmm. getting some of the unintentional, I hope unintentional. I mean, unless, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you would have to believe in the Illuminati to assume that somebody was, you know, saying, <laughs> ah, let's know, let's quash this sexual revolution thing with Star Trek. Well, you yeah, know, in fairness, um, Star Trek probably did kill the sexual revolution for lots of people from about the late oh. 1960s all the way through. Uh, well, today, See? today, if we're honest, for some, not everybody, I'm not, you know, not you, listener. I'm talking about those other people. Okay. okay. Don't get offended. Um, I, I just, yeah, there's, there's something about it is wrong. Something about it is wrong. And I, and, and what's sad is that you can unintentionally be either a prude or a sexist just i mean and 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 do those two things flawlessly (laughs) well but he here's the thing sylvia is dealing with new 
new sensations, uh, a, a new physical form, new emotions, uh, a, a totally new experience in the world and no idea what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Kirk, by contrast, has got it under control. And and now we see, again, this sort of idea of what, uh, you know, the many sides of Kirk that we have seen before, where he's he's got the evil, and I, I'm doing evil in finger quotes here, the passionate, impulsive, uh, darker side, and the side that can kind of keep that all in control. Kurt's got it under control. Wait, you know? where did you see the darker, passionate? Not in this episode you didn't see that. No, 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 no. Just... I, I, yeah, he, okay. he's just in control Kirk. Oh, yeah, because yeah, he that, was just playing her. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Because of that, you know, we're, we're sort of seeing just a, a little contrast here between the millions of years of human evolution that we, we have that side of us, but hey, if you're like Kirk, you can keep it under control. If you're like Sylvia, and this is all new, and this is all different, and you have no idea what your mission is, because we have no idea what your mission is, then uh, she might go a little haywire and not be able to control those impulses. Yeah, so, the only problem that I have there, though, is she is rationally saying the whole time that she likes what's happening now. Do you know what I mm-hmm. mean? She didn't go nuts like, like um, well, I mean, again, uh, to use the, the, the two most obviously insane characters that we've seen Roger Corby or Landru, you know, where, where they get sort of thrown or, or nomad where they get thrown into the word jujitsu kind of thing. She's not crazy. She right. has decided that what she wants to do is given to given to uh, the pleasures of the flesh. And, and, and nobody else in this episode is doing that. It's only either the woman or the person who decides that they want to enjoy sex and I, and I'm not I'm again I'm not 100% certain if this is an indictment of women or if this is an indictment of of the sexual revolution but either way it seems to be one of the two eh, unintentionally again maybe I'm just yeah yeah maybe I'm just fixating on that too much I got to ask really quickly when did Kirk suddenly become like Casanova because well, we sort of like, you know, 50 years later or close to 50 years later kind of think back on Kirk and it's like, oh yeah, it was a different woman every week. This is the first time that we've actually seen him use sexuality. He was involved in some way, apparently, with the woman who ran his court martial. We know that from, you know, the way they acted and interacted. Uh, certainly he fell in love with Edith Keeler. He, you know, kind of yeah, flirted with Mary, but that was only kind of flirting with Mary. I mean, he used the sexuality a little bit uh, to uh, uh, kind of confuse Andrea in what her little girl's made of. Yeah, but she's a machine. Well, yeah. He's got real problems. Well, yeah, I mean, he still brought it. But I mean, mean, it's like kissing a toaster, right? I mean, as far as as far as he was concerned, like think about how uncomfortable he was when he was with Noel in um, Dagger of the Mind. Because mm-hmm. apparently he'd gotten drunk at a Christmas party and done something. We don't know that he got drunk. We don't know what that was exactly. But he was very uncomfortable with the fact that they had had anything even approaching intimacy. And he doesn't really know how to talk to her at that point. Right. Right. But when he thinks that Sylvia is a... Well, he thinks of her as a woman, even if she's not a woman. And he's kind of like... He seems to be like going back and forth on whether or not she is. Um, yeah, he's got no problem pulling them out of Hari. Yeah, it is a little weird. Um, It's a lot weird, actually. And it it just seems to kind of come out of nowhere. But then a lot of character stuff sort of comes out of nowhere in this episode. So um, if I'm faulted for that, I'll I'll fault it for a lot. Um, By the way, uh, just to go back to something that you said, if kissing a toaster is anything like kissing Andrea from Where Little Girls Made (laughs) Of, we're going to cut the show short. And I'm going to go kiss kiss a toaster. Okay. Um, 
one of the things, though, I, I think Kirk clued in early, and I'm just sort of pulling this out of thin air to, to try to come up with a justification for it. One of the things that Sylvia says that she is attracted to with Kirk is his power, because she doesn't understand power, which is interesting because this race, they do have a certain kind of power. You know, granted, it's through technology, but they, they have minds, they have motivations, all of this stuff. Well, no, um, they, they also have a hierarchy. I mean, they, do. Yeah. they yeah. have been sent there on a mission. She is a traitor. I mean, mm-hmm. th- there's, there's something. Power should not be a completely foreign idea to them. Otherwise, there's no such thing as a mission. Somebody has to send you, right? Yeah. For you oh, to yeah. be yeah, sent. Yeah. <laughs> so so but, somebody but, but that has is power. Still something. But that is still something that she asks Kirk about. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and she's attracted to it. So, you know, to to give him the benefit of the doubt, he's looking for any in that he can. Uh, but I agree with you. It doesn't play. It doesn't play true. And, Out and it, loud, it you're going to say that? I'm sorry. Out yeah, loud, yeah, you're going to say that? All right. So, yeah. <laughs> I nearly spit my water all over my computer. Oh. Go ahead. All right. Um uh, but hey, I, I want to move on to a slightly different topic here. Okay, um, and uh, and just say that you know you brought up in the observations that uh, our boss Rod kind of compared this to an episode of Scooby Doo, um, and, and yeah, I, I think you're totally right, and Rod is totally right. The, the the trappings, the location, everything is like that. We have the we have the, the team gone in to try to figure out what the mystery of the week is. But I, I will take that as kind of a compliment, and, uh, and I'll go with it from there. I, I like the idea in this episode that Kirk is having none of it just right from the beginning. He, he is totally skeptical of everything that is going on, and his whole mission is to just pull the carpet out from under Sylvia and Korob and get to the bottom of things. Now, his motivation in doing this is that he's got a dead crew member and he has zombie-like friends. Mm-hmm. At this um, uh, but I, th- there is something about that that we've seen a lot of in Kirk uh, that I really like. Kirk is ready to go in and expose the thing for what it really is. You know, in Scooby-Doo, it would be pulling the mask off of the ghost that's haunting the amusement park in Star Trek, it's revealing the aliens for what they really are, revealing the source of their power, or revealing the computer that's controlling society. Yeah, I'm not sure why you're willing to compliment it for that, though, because this really seems like an episode of Star Trek for 10-year-olds. I mean, if you really want, right. if you want to scare Kirk, have him beam down, and there's the disembodied head of Sulu next to the disembodied head of Scotty. I mean, for you to say, well, it wouldn't be interesting, and hopefully it also wouldn't be permanent. I mean, you, you say, oh, well, Kirk, you know, faced his fear. Well, Kirk faced a fear that he probably faced at a fair in Iowa when he was eight. Yeah, right. right. You know what right. I mean? I mean, in a little car or, you know, floating car or whatever they would have, whatever they're going to have in the 23rd century, you know, for, yeah. for fairs and fun houses and what have you. I mean, this is, again, like you said, it, it's sort of like the mid 20th century of scary, except it's like the mid 20th century child's version of scary. I mean, Korob really missed the mark a lot. I mean, he didn't just like, they said, oh, he was trying for our sub, he was trying for our conscious mind and he, and he hit our subconscious and also our four-year-old. Oh, right. <laughs> well, you know, I, giving the production the benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. scary is hard to do. 
And scary is hard to do, particularly in family-oriented entertainment from yeah. 67. So uh, all of that stuff to me is shorthand. Now, you would do it in a much more sophisticated, much different way now, clearly, clearly. And you'd do it in an even different way if it were on cable. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, it, so it's not so much that Kirk is in fear of what's going on. He, he's annoyed by it. And, and I kind of uh, I, I kind of respect that. I like it. It's like, look, OK, enough. Enough of this nonsense. I, there's got to be something here controlling this. And I'm going to figure out what it is. And I'm going to either unplug it or break it or confuse it <laughs> and get my men back up to the ship. I guess the only thing I wish, I mean, where you want you want to defend the um, production, I guess I wish maybe what they had chosen was a bit more uh, sophisticated, only a little bit more sophisticated. Now, oh, sure, you sure. do have the three hags from Macbeth at the beginning. Okay, and that's that's fairly sophisticated. Um, I'm trying to remember, is it Usher 2? Is that the name of the story uh, by Ray Bradbury? Mm. I want to say it's from the Martian Chronicles. Um Basically, you know, books have been outlawed sort of along the lines of Fahrenheit uh, 451. But this guy goes to Mars where books aren't outlawed and you can have sort of a fantasy life. And then um, they're about to outlaw them. So he builds this giant house and he fills it with stuff from um, Edgar Allan Poe stories. And so we've got the Telltale Heart. We've got the Pit and the Pendulum. We've got uh, Mask of the Red Death. Um I think that's Mask of the Red Death. I might be misremembering that. But basically you have all this, you know, scary stuff that, you know, we all knew in the 60s when Ray Bradbury was writing, or 50s or 60s when Ray Bradbury was writing The Martian Chronicles. And, and um, yeah, I guess I just wish the scary stuff had been a little more, sure, uh, just a tiny bit more sophisticated. Because you're right. I mean, today we would do, you know, axe murders and chainsaws and, you know, and... and so- Zom- well, zombie zombies, right. I said they were kind of zombies, but they were really more automatons. I mean, we would actually have Sulu's arm falling off or, or, or Scotty's you know, chin or something like that. Uh, there is another little kind of Star Trekism here that I like, uh, that at the end when we finally do reveal what Sylvia and Korob are, um, not only is it very alien, it, it's something to be pitied almost. You know, we're... we're it, we kind of made fun of it because it is true that at the end these things are dead and even the science officer can't be bothered to study it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but at least we revealed our foe to not be quite as fearsome as we originally thought. Uh, it, it's just a, a missed opportunity that even with a line or two at the end kind of could have been corrected. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like Spock saying, uh, there's not even enough there to scrape up. I know, right. Anything. <laughs> right anything would have been okay so are you saying that that's sort of like the 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 usual sort of uh carbon chauvinism kind of thing or person chauvinism kind of thing Mm. well there is a little bit of chauvinism here a little little human chauvinism maybe you know um like sylvia is corrupted by the physical sensation she likes what she has and and it goes to her head mm-hmm. uh but the humans the humans in fact kirk can handle it we're fine with this um uh, so it, it's sort of this message that the aliens are super advanced what they really need is just some good old human flesh 
No, you see, that's interesting. I would say what they really need is to not have male, male, male parts <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. it's not both the aliens. I mean, again, had Landon landed down there or had Uhura landed down there, had we seen Korob go nuts? Yeah. Or he was a portly fellow. Maybe he just, like, you know, makes that whole meal happen. Mm-hmm. Like, you could do a whole Seven Deadly Sins thing if you wanted to. I mean, this is why it doesn't necessarily feel to me like this is an alien chauvinism versus human chauvinism or truly alien versus humanoid um, chauvinism. It It really does feel to me like a sexist thing because it's only the woman who falls prey to this. Yeah. Not yeah. Korob. I, I will say, though, initially, anyway, there does seem to be a lot of chauvinism, you know, to go around. Uh, Korob points out that Spock is different. Uh, there is no color to his logic. He sees all that is around him, but he does not believe. And uh, Bone says, well, Spock doesn't understand trick or treat, to which Korob replies, I do not understand that reference. Therefore, it is also of no importance. I love that line. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, because he, I mean... Maybe, and forgive me, I don't have this in the notes because it just occurred to me. I mean, maybe there is inherent weakness in being human. It's just different for different things. Because Korob shows up, I mean, he, he he delivers that line. I don't understand it, therefore it's not important. But the more he hangs out with the people and the more he sees Sylvia kind of going nuts from hanging out with people, the more he becomes like people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he, yeah. He's also still got a mission. But he's not even going to try to, like, do his mission anymore. He's just going to try to stop Sylvia because she's not trying to do the mission. He's not trying to stop her and continue the mission. He's trying to get, you know, the people of the Enterprise to safety because he doesn't like the way Sylvia is treating them. Mm-hmm. And so whatever he was sent there to do, he no longer has to do. So maybe, maybe ultimately, <laughs> the real problem is becoming human. It's not being human because the human's got it going on. Just mm-hmm. ask, you know, Captain James T. Kirk of the USS Enterprise. Yeah. But, uh, but, but turning into a human, yeah, that's not going to work out for you. Stay a robot or, you know, a, a prawn, whatever you, whatever you happen to be at the time. It looks like we've got a mystery here, gang. Velma, you, Fred and Daphne do something useful. Shag and Scoop, you try to find food and get into trouble. John and Ken, tell us whether this episode holds up. So I apologize if my uh, comments earlier made it sound like I had already made up my mind about this episode. Because uh, now, now we've arrived at the point in the show where we really get to uh, to hold it up to scrutiny and decide uh, what works and do- what doesn't work. Uh, so the first question that I will pose to you, Ken, <laughs> you ready for this? Can no. you handle? This? Yeah, I'm thinking about doing a Rex Reed imitation. Does this episode <laughs> hold up? No. I I would even go so far as to say unqualified no. I mean, there's 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 so much that's just wrong, and I guess I kind of feel bad about that. The one thing is, if you want to go back and study it, at least there is something there to study. Oh, look at that. Inherent sexism, maybe. Or, you know, an inherent problem with hedonism, maybe. Whatever. There are things you can pull out of it, but you got to want to. I mean, you basically have to be under contract to do a show about the show. <laughs> <laughs> that would be crazy. That would be a, I, that's a nutty idea. And and, and, and in fairness, I, I yeah, I guess I am under contract. Anyway, it's oh. it's it, it's it, no, it, it doesn't work. It it just it, on so many levels, it doesn't work, and it's kind of sad. I like the guy who plays Korob. I'm sad to hear about his untimely yeah. end. 
he's kind of fun. Um, the when the cat turns giant, oh, yeah. Dear. If you haven't seen it, just really don't, because the cat doesn't actually turn giant. <laughs> they put a cat uh, near a light mm-hmm. and cast a giant shadow, mm-hmm. or they put a regular cat like behind a really tiny door. <laughs> it just and and then you hear the. Uh... The, the cat, the giant cat sound effects from like the Universal Studios yeah. sound library circa 1938. Yeah, it's just so no, the production doesn't work, unfortunately. I mean, you're you you said there are lots of parts of uh, the Squire of Gothos here, including the set. It's not yeah. the exact same set, but I mean, it's very similar. I mean, so we've seen that. Um, the hags are really disgusting looking, but not scary. And they're they're disgusting. You know, that might, they, they might actually have a shot at scaring me, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it just doesn't. Personally, I think the best part of the whole episode is DeSal and you, you found him fairly useless. So I just found him a little off putting. So uh, tell me on a scale of alternative factor to Miri, where do we put cat's paw? Well, I didn't dislike it as much as I disliked Miri. I like the alternative factor more. I, I mean, to ask me that question, you would have to say, which would I rather watch again? Um, yeah. Operation Annihilate mm. or Cat's Paw? And I'd still probably have to watch Cat's Paw again, although I would really not enjoy it. I'd rather you, <laughs> I'd rather you not make me. How would that be? You know, I forgot to mention, by the way, the Phyllis Diller outfit. When, 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 oh, uh, when she's gosh. trying to... Um, Oh, when Sylvia is trying to really tempt Kirk, because she's already got Kirk as far as she knows. She's like, yeah, yeah. he's like, you're sexy. I'm going to put my hands all over you and I'm going to kiss you, you know, and he's doing that. Right. And then she backs away and she's like, oh, would you like me like this? And she's yeah, kind of a cute blonde, I guess. I think she'll look good in the first transformation. Yeah, she's okay. But then, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm objectifying, but she's holding herself up as an object. So, you know, back off me. All right. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but then she says, or what do you think of this? And you look at her and she's got like kind of Phyllis Diller hair and a clown outfit. And I'm not <laughs> sure. I know it was a different time. And I do know that she is totally alien, but I really don't, I don't see, you know, what she thought. <laughs> and, and she's doing like some weird calisthenics when she's got there on that, that outfit. Too. There is. Yeah. Yes. That's kind of, it was, that was uh, totally bizarre. So yeah, there are lots of ways this episode doesn't work for me. But what about you, John? Do you think this episode works? <laughs> yeah, um, no. Okay. No, it does not hold right. up. Uh, yeah. but, but I will uh, point out a couple of uh, different things from, uh, from what you pointed out. Um, mm-hmm. it, the alien design is bad. The, you you <laughs> describe them as being prawns in a fur coat. Yeah. Um, but, but. I don't think I, I said the fur coat part for the record, but yeah. Yeah, okay. it's sort of like a sort of like a faux fur. Like if somebody made a coat out of Cookie Monster, and, yeah, then, and then shrank it and right. put it on a shrimp, yeah, you kind of got an idea of what they look like. Exactly, uh, but it is alien. You know, they they were definitely thinking outside of the box. So it's kind of like the Horda in that respect. That's true. Um, that the we're not doing uh, a human being in a mask. We are doing something totally different. So I, I respect that. It just doesn't work here. No, it doesn't. It's unfortunate. Um, and, and I will say this, that pretty much for every scene that we are on the planet, uh, this is not the best direction that we've seen. It's not the best directing work we've seen. This is Joe Pevney, who directed a lot of Star Trek. Um, but I will say that there are some really cool angles on the bridge that we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and to me, because this was the first episode shot for season two, I chalk it up to the kind of uh, the, the excitement and motivation. Hey, we're back from summer break, so now I'm really going to work hard and do new and unique things. And then the rest of it just kind of fell apart. <laughs> but it was really creative for uh, a few moments there. So um, if you're just looking for, you know, some cool crane shots and all the bridge, I, I think that stuff works well. You mentioned the actor playing Korob, uh, Theo Marcuse, who um, I think has some great moments. He, yeah. He's a lot of fun to watch. And we do get a lot of kind of very dramatic push-ins on him. So uh, there's some good stuff here. Unfortunately, that good stuff is too far and few between, and it does not add up to a good episode by any stretch. Yeah. And there's not even, like, you can't even say there's a hammer-handed message. I mean, you can't even say, but at least they were, you know, at least their heart was in the right place. No. Because the most we've been able to find out is either they didn't like sex or they didn't like women or they didn't like a combination of the two. Accidentally, subconsciously. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a morality play about not giving in to anything that would tempt you, it seems to me. And, and, you know, and I, and I, you know, I would say don't be ruled by that is a good message, but I mean, she wasn't even allowed to experience it before she was wrecking everything for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even then I feel like we, we are really, really stretching for a message here. Um, Oh, there's no message here. I feel certain uh, there's no message. There's an, there's an unintentional I mean, if there's a message, it's unintentional, but it's also yeah. bad. I mean, you yeah. can't even say, well, they accidentally said, be nice to everybody. No, they accidentally said either women are bad or sex is bad or a combination of the two. <laughs> well, I, I will redeem it with, uh, again, my, my applauding of uh, Kirk's skeptical nature and, and not, being, uh, not being drawn in by fear and just wow. trying to figure out the, the true root of the problem here. But like you said, the fear doesn't necessarily work when what we're seeing on the screen is not very scary. Are you related to somebody in this episode? No, why? I've heard you be so much more mean about episodes that didn't strike me as <laughs> as bad as this episode. Well, like I said, I did not enjoy this episode really on any level, except for uh, Theo Marcuse's acting. Um, I, I thought he was enjoyable. And I thought... I, I think the, the writing is just kind of a wreck. And <laughs> said the, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not trying to get you to be mean. I'm just trying to figure out. I mean, you're you're really you're you're struggling to find good things about it. And, and you know, uh, that's, I'm just that's the, nice the one you. thing. The, the one thing that I respond to is is like I said. The uh, we we're kind of making light of it as a silly thing that is the Scooby Doo episode. Mm-hmm. But but if Scooby Doo has one good quality. And there are many, but if it has one good quality, it's the ability to uh, say, hey, don't be afraid of that thing that's really scary, that's not really real, because it's probably just an old man in a ghost mask wandering around a park. And in this case, it's really just a couple of prawns and a fur coat. You don't really <laughs> need to be afraid of it. You know, one of the reasons that I may have no love in my heart for this episode at all, um, that- I hate Scooby-Doo. <laughs> I abhor Scooby-Doo. I'm kind of okay with Shaggy, but just the show in general, I'm not a big fan of. You know what I am a huge fan of, though, John? You know what I'm a huge fan of? What are you a huge fan of? Harcourt Fenton Mud. Oh, you're so lucky because he is totally coming back. Next week, I Mud. 
some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. With the Scooby-Doo episode out of the way, I am now very much looking forward to the Hong Kong Fui episode. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.